You know, as individuals and as families, as businesses or organizations for that matter, we have identities. We have certain behaviors and priorities that, that characterize us and, and define us to those who know us or observe us. So maybe you're the athlete. Maybe you're the bookworm. Maybe your family is the outdoor family. Maybe the music family. Maybe your company is the decentralized, nimble, decision-making type. We have things that we're known by. We have things that we're characterized by. You know, as a church, God would have us have an identity as well. As a church, God would have us to be known by something, to be characterized by something. He would have there be something about us that is plain for all to see, and when new folks check us out on Sunday morning, he would have them walk away with an impression. And here is what he's looking for. Here it is. He would have us be a church that receives and responds to his word with joyful and obedient faith. He would have us to be a church that receives and responds to his word with joyful and obedient faith. That's what our text is going to show us this morning. And I invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 5. If uh, you are new to us, we're working our way through Nehemiah, and the book of Nehemiah is just to the left of Psalms and Proverbs. If you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these ayahs, then you've gone too far. If you're using the blue Bible in front of you, it's on page 402. And just another help to you, if you're new to looking at the Bible, when I say chapter 7, verse 5, the, the chapter is, are the big bold letters and the verse numbers are small numbers, okay? So, so when I say 7, 5, bold 7, not bold 5. That's just gonna help you follow along. And as you turn there, Let me just bring you back up to speed on some context. We're actually at a transition text as we come to 7.5. So 7.5 through 12.43 is the third major section of this book. In the first section, chapters 1 and 2, Nehemiah returns to the land. In the second section, 3 through 6, Nehemiah rebuilds the city. Now we turn to 7. And we find that the emphasis now is on rebuilding the people. They're back in the land. They've rebuilt the temple and the city, but they are not done rebuilding. In fact, the most important work and the hardest work remains. It's the formation of the people themselves. So that brings us to 7.5. In this chapter, I'm going to let you know ahead of time everybody gets excited about it. It's a genealogy. We won't read it all, but I do want to take a moment here. I want you to pick up with me in verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. 
I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigvi, Nahum, Bana. And before we go further, you should know that this is the same genealogy that's found in Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 through 70. Verse 5 actually tells us that. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. That's the genealogy in Ezra chapter 2. And I found written in it, and then who do you have? Well, just pick back up. The number of the sons of the number of the sons of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 652, the sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Yeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Bebai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashun, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Haruf, that's a good one. 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Natopha, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Osmaveth, 442. The men of Kiriath Jerim, Chephira, and Beroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, not the one you're thinking of, 52. (laughs) The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Hiran, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadad, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sena, 3,930. Okay. Those are the number of the men. What follows next is identifying the number of priests. That starts on verse 39. The number of Levites. That starts on verse 43. The temple servants, that starts on verse 46. The sons of Solomon's servants, 57. Those who couldn't prove their descent, 61 and following. And then we've got some totals. Just throw your eyes on to verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now skip over to verse 73. 
So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now why is this genealogy here? What in the world, why in the world include it? Well, it's pretty simple. In Ezra chapter two, it's included because Ezra wants us to know that this is the covenant community. These are the people in specific who are about to gather in Jerusalem as one to rebuild the temple. That's Ezra 2. Here in Nehemiah, Nehemiah wants us to know that this same community, the descendants of these people are those who are about to gather in Jerusalem again as one but for a different purpose, to be shaped, molded, and built by the word of God. You know, the word of God is so amazing, brothers and sisters, that the literary parallels between Ezra and Nehemiah are absolutely shockingly distinct. So in Ezra, after chapter two's genealogy, chapter three begins like this. Here are the words. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in their towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem and they begin the process of rebuilding the altar. Now in Nehemiah, after chapter seven's genealogy, 773 into 81 says this, and when the seventh month had come and the people of Israel were in their towns and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Do you see how that's exactly the same? First day of the seventh month, everybody's in their towns, everybody gathers as one man to do business with the Lord. Accidental? No, it's totally intentional. Things like that are just icing on the cake of inerrancy. What is inerrancy? Big word, you should know it. It's the doctrine that the word of God, the Bible, is perfect and true in everything it says. There are no errors. There are no oopses. The word is entirely too true and trustworthy because this is God's word and he is entirely true and trustworthy. Now, at this point, let me just take a second and say to you that if you were to put these lists side by side, it would be clear to you that they're the same. But it would also be clear to you that there are discrepancies So several names are present in one list and absent in another. Several numbers are different in one list than they are in another. Well, what are we to make of that? Well, as it relates to names, scholars suggest two things. Number the first one, it's possible that neither of the lists were intended to be exhausted, so the addition or subtraction of a name isn't a problem, okay? Number the next one, I just do that for fun, it's a genealogy. Are you still with me? Okay, number the next one, uh, it w- well, now I lost my place. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm preaching a sermon, I don't even know where I am. Uh, okay, all right, here we go. Uh, it's possible that Ezra may have compiled a list of those who left Babylon for Jerusalem, 
While Nehemiah compiled a list of those who actually arrived at Jerusalem. So it's possible that on the journey some died. It's possible that on the journey some joined that hadn't been there at the beginning. It was a four-month journey. Those are two options for you, okay? Now, as it relates to number discrepancies, the best answer is scribal copying error. So just for example, in Ezra, the descendants of Adonikam are 666. In Nehemiah, 667. It's like when you take a printed list and you, you put those numbers into Excel and six is right beside seven and you fat finger it, right? You know, it just, you just hit the wrong one. That's easy to do. Another example for you, in Ezra, the descendants of Zatu are 845. I know you knew that. And in Nehemiah, it's 945. Well, what gives. It's just one digit difference. Somebody wrote down nine instead of eight. Here's the deal though. Copyist errors do not undermine inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy is that the word of God is perfect in the original manuscripts. These are copies. There's some textual variation. That's okay. It doesn't undermine the perfection and trustworthiness of God's word. Now, why would I take a second to kind of just weed into this, wade into this just a little bit? It's a good question. I want to tell you it's because I want you to know that there is nothing to fear as it relates to God's word being perfectly true in all that it says. So if you come across something in the Bible that seems to be contradictory or doesn't make sense, you don't have to hide your head in the sand. You don't have to be afraid. You certainly shouldn't be like, well, I guess there are errors in the Bible. No, there's a reasonable explanation. Ask me. I can point you to tools. In fact, if you want a book recommendation, just go on Amazon and buy the big book of Bible difficulties. The big book of Bible difficulties. It's an excellent tool organized by books of the Bible that have answers to questions like that in them. All right, chapter seven. The big idea is that the covenant community of faith has been identified. These are the people who are about to be rebuilt. Now, even as I say that, I recognize that's a really weird way to talk. What the heck do I mean when I say that these people are about to be rebuilt? Just want you to think. They were in captivity for 70 years because of sin and idolatry. And in captivity, they lived in the midst of pagan peoples. <laughs> Just ask yourself, do you think this people is a people holy to the Lord at this point? No. No. <laughs> they've been in captivity. And, and since their return, they've been making sure invaders can't overrun them. And so now, now it's time for God to do some precious heart work in them. And that's what we're going to see as we move to chapters 8 through 12. And heart work always begins with God's word. So let's look at chapter eight. Two, two sections here. 
How I see it is the people gather, receive, and respond to the word. There's kind of round one. That's verses one through 12. If you're an outline type of person, you can use that to help you follow along. So that's round one. And then round two, they gather, receive, and respond to the word again in 13 through 18. So let's just read chapter eight, verses one through eight. Read that with me. Chapter eight, verses one through eight. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And all the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shammai, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashun, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hadiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Honan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Okay, so this is the seventh month in Israel's calendar. That translates into September or October for us. And the seventh month is a huge year in Israel's, or is a huge calendar, is a huge month in Israel's calendar. On the first day of this month, there's supposed to be a big gathering. Scripture calls it a holy convocation. On the 10th day of the month was the Day of Atonement. On the 15th day of the month was the beginning of the Festival of Booze. And so this is the first day of the month. Verse 2 tells us that. And what do the people do? Well, they gather together. And why do they gather together? Well, the text doesn't say. It may be that the leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah, called everybody to gather. That may be the case. It may be the case that the people themselves knew enough that they knew they needed to gather together on the first day. We don't know. What we know is that they come together and what we know is what they wanted when they came together. What did they want? Just look at verse one. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. What did the congregation want? What did the people ask for? The book of the law of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
the Torah, the essence of God's word at this point. The people want the word. This is so beautiful. Let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, as your pastor, there are few things as encouraging to me and your elders than to see you with an appetite for God's word. That's what the people have here. It's not the leaders who say, let's get together and hear the word. It's the people who tell the leaders, bring the fire. And and Ezra's like, okay, all right. And he does. He reads the Torah, and how long does he read? 30 minutes. 30 minutes, because that's all people can handle, right? (laughs) Half a day. Now, so here we go, all right, all right. No, it would probably take about 12 hours to read through the Torah. That's not all that long. It would take about 12 hours to read through the Torah. They go for about six hours, but they probably didn't make it halfway because it wasn't simply reading. It was reading with explanation. So Ezra's on the platform. It was constructed for this purpose. There are six guys to his right. There are seven guys on his left. Additionally, there are 13 Levites, and these men assist the people in their understanding of the word. So we don't know if they broke into small groups. We don't know if there were pauses in the reading, and then these men stationed at various areas explained things. We don't know exactly how it worked, but we know, according to verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Just get a load of this. This is everybody here. Men, women, children, everybody who can understand, the text says, and they're gathered here simply to hear the word. They want to hear the word, and this is exactly what God has wanted for them for years. Deuteronomy 31 says, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. And here they are. They're here. And they want it. And Israel gives it to them for no less than a half a day. And everybody's engaged. No, nobody's sleeping. No, nobody's checking the time. Nobody's discreetly scrolling through social media on their lap. Their attention is focused, wrapped upon the word of God. And the result is doxology. Big word that just means praise to God. Verse six, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen. Amens are biblical. Can I just say that? And they lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. We learn something about true worship here, don't we? It's grounded in his word. And it's centered upon God. 
As they hear God speak, they worship God because God is great and God is good. And there's something else that happens too. When they hear God's word, they're pricked in their hearts. So look at the next section, pick up in verse nine. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Big idea here, I'm sure you see it. It's right there on the surface of the text. Is Ezra and Nehemiah exhort Israel not to grieve, but to rejoice. Let's just stop for a second and ask the question, why would they grieve? Because they've come face to face with God. As God's word is read and explained and they understand it, they come to know him, his holiness, his perfection, his power, his patience, his law, his wrath, his grace. And as they read, no doubt their vision of who God is is expanded and expanded and expanded and they begin to understand just how other he is, not other in terms of unknowable, but other in terms of majestic and exalted and glorious and pure and after seeing him truly, guess what? They begin to see themselves truly. After beholding him, they begin to behold themselves. In the first book of Calvin's Institutes, he says this, and it's marvelously true. It is certain that men never achieve a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us. Unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. End quote. You can see why their impulse was to grieve, can't you? It's because in seeing God, they've finally seen themselves. And so like Isaiah, their impulse is to cry out, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Brothers, sisters, it is right to grieve when when we begin to understand who God really is. 
But it is also right to rejoice. In fact, that's what the leaders, by God's direction, say to the people. There's this impulse to grieve. You see it there multiple times in the text. But every time, what do the leaders say? Hey, don't grieve. Don't mourn. Don't don't weep. Not today. Today is a day of rejoicing. Now, why is rejoicing appropriate? Let's just ask ourselves that. Why is rejoicing appropriate? Grieving is appropriate. Why is rejoicing appropriate? For so many reasons. It's appropriate because of God's mercy and God's grace to them. Reading through the Torah, they'd see how so many times God does not treat them how they deserve. Reading through the Torah, they'd see how he is, according to his own proclamation of himself in Exodus 34, he is the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's appropriate because of his preservation of them. Oh, he could have wiped them out so many times, but even when he judged them and sent them into exile, he was merciful. He's preserved a remnant and he's brought them back to Jerusalem and he's sustained them through rebuilding, so rejoicing is appropriate because of his preservation. And rejoicing is appropriate because he's speaking to them. He's revealing himself to them. That is an incredible privilege. The God of heaven, the creator, the sustainer, the almighty, he stoops down to our level and he speaks so we can hear and he speaks so we can know and he speaks so we can follow. That is incredible. There you go. (laughs) And that's where round one leaves off. The people have gathered. They've received the word and they've responded to the word. And the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Amen. So let's look at round two, and I want you to pick up in verse 13. On the second day, so everything that just happened was on the first day of the month. That was a pretty big month, pretty big day, okay? So everything that happened was just on the first day. This is the second day of the month. The heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together. So this isn't everybody. It's the heads of the houses gathering. So everybody's represented even though everybody's not here but mom and the kids stayed home and so we've got we've got a men's gathering here and what do the men want to do what do the men want to do what's on their heart when they come together with their brothers they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law So yesterday was great. Yesterday was great, and they want more. Yesterday was wonderful, and they want more. Ezra, bring the heat, man. Let's go. We started in Genesis. We got halfway through Leviticus yesterday. Let's see how far we can get today. Ezra, boy, you just got to appreciate their appetite, 
right? They've got an appetite for God's word. And again, like the previous section, who is it that instigates? It's the men themselves saying, come on, give it to me. Give it to me. And look at what happens. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out in the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So here's the deal. They got to, let's just say, Leviticus 23, or one of the other passages in the Torah that talk about the Feast of Booths, but Leviticus 23 talks about it clearly, and Leviticus 23 says this. So they're, they're bumping along in the reading, and, and they come to Leviticus 23:39, and it says this. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now I just want you to put yourself in their shoes for a second. It's the second day of the seventh month. They read this text, which tells them that in 13 days, all Israel is supposed to celebrate this special festival called the Feast of Booths. Now, this text talks about how they're to dwell in booths, basically tents, for seven days. Other texts describe the offerings that are supposed to take place every day, and it's pretty ornate. It starts out with 13 bulls being offered, two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old, grain offerings, a male goat for sin offerings, beside the regular burnt offering in the morning and the evening with its grain offering and its burnt offering. And for all that to go down, the priests have got to be consecrated, the temple has to be organized. This is no joke. So you're sitting there, bros, you're sitting there, and you find out about this. God's word makes it plain to you that he expects something from you. And what do you do? What do they do? Do they think about how much effort it's going to take and judge that they probably can't pull it off? Do they consider putting it off a year so that they can be better prepared? Do they ask Ezra if it's okay given the whole God is gracious thing if they just don't do it this time? Grace, grace, God's grace. Do they look at their calendar and do they say, you know, I just didn't budget this kind of time for this deal here. They don't do any of that. What is so simple and what is so profound is that they just respond with obedience. Is this going to take a ton of work? Yes. Is this going to upend their lives for a solid three weeks? (laughs) Yes. 
Are they going to have to go home and convince their wives to be excited for camping seven days? Yes. But do they hesitate for one moment? No. God's word has spoken and they simply obey. Oh, praise God for this simple faith. For the faith of men who look to God's word, they look it in the eye and they say, if it says it, I'm going to do it. If it says it, I'm going to do it. Brothers, is that your heart? Are you receptive to God's word? Are you responsive to God's word like that? Well, let's see what happens here. Verse 16. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who'd returned from captivity. Look, <laughs> look at this. It's everybody. <laughs> Made booths and lived in booths from the days, for from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to the day that the people of Israel, I'm sorry, for from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. Now that's actually not to be read literalistically as though the people had not celebrated this feast at all from the days of Joshua until now. They actually had celebrated it under Solomon. You can read about that. But they hadn't done so consistently in their history and that's kind of the point here. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day from the first day to the last day he read from the book of the law of God They kept the feast seven days and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So they do it. They do the work. They keep the feast and every day of that feast they gather together around what? The word. Every day of that feast Ezra read from the book of the law and the people kept saying Ezra Bring it. So this is the beginning of Reformation. What we're going to see next week is this impulse to to grieve is given full expression in confession of sin. And then in the following week, the people renew their covenant with God. But, but, But all of that, it all starts here. It starts with receiving and responding to God's word. And it's a day of rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, it's a day of rejoicing for us too. This, brothers and sisters, this is a day of rejoicing for us. I want you to reflect for just a minute on the privilege that God has granted to each and every single one of you who are in Jesus Christ. He has revealed himself to you. He has spoken to you. He has shown himself to you. You are not ignorant like so many are of who he is. You are not deceived 
like so many are in thinking that he does not exist or he is unknowable or that there are many ways to him. You know him because he has revealed himself to you both as almighty God and through Jesus Christ as the almighty saving God. That is a reason to rejoice, amen? that God would reveal himself to you, that he would show you who he is, who you are, and no doubt you understand that impulse to grieve because of your sin, but not today. Today is a day of rejoicing because of the gospel. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Romans 4, 7 and 8. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin, but you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, Romans 6. Brothers and sisters, God has spoken to you and God has saved you. What a reason to rejoice. And what's more, he has graciously placed you in a church where he continues to speak to you. Oh, he did not have to do this, but he has. He has brought you to a place where his word is expounded, where his word is explained, where his word is lifted up. Have you considered lately just how blessed you are? And non-Christians, this applies to you too. You are blessed because God is speaking this morning and you're hearing it. He's speaking to you. He is offering himself to you. He doesn't have to do that, but he is. And you can come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died to pay the price for your sins. He rose again and he promises that if you turn from your sin and trust in him, you are forgiven. He is revealing that to you right now. Oh, praise God. And you can come. Church. Let's continue to be a word-centered church. A church that gathers like they gathered. Gathers on the first day of every week and during the week to hear the word and to respond to the word. Let's be like the men in the text this morning that says, if it says it, I want to do it. May that be the cry of our hearts. If it says it, then I want to do it. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for speaking to us in general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims your handiwork. And in special revelation, the enfleshed word, the written word, Oh God, thank you and by your grace make us a people hungry for it, responsive to it, eager to obey it. What a reason to rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.